insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. Welcome back to the Patrick Madrid Show. Thank you for listening. And here's the number to call if you want to be on the air. I have space right now. It's not going to last long, though. This number is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. And, of course, emails, you can send them to patrick at relevantradio.com. I have a note here. This is from Elizabeth, and she is listening in, I think she's listening in Maine. I'm not entirely sure, but I think so. Maybe not. She doesn't mention, but she says, Thanks for the show. I've learned a lot. Uh, I need help identifying identifying mortal sins. For example, do each of the questions found nestled within the Ten Commandments of the relevant radio app Confession Helper, do these represent mortal sins? I know mortal sins are grave matter that destroy our relationship with God and are committed with full knowledge and free will. However, I'm having difficulty recognizing what's grave and what's not. Any insights you can provide are greatly appreciated. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. I do appreciate that. Why don't we just open up the Relevant Radio app, shall we? Everybody, take your phone in hand and tap on Pray on the lower right-hand side, and you'll see where the, the blue tabs are. You get down to Confession Helper, how to go to confession, how to make a good confession, examination of conscience. We'll return to that. Prayer before confession, your act of contrition, and a prayer after confession. So everything that you would need to be fully prepared to go to this sacrament, the sacrament of confession, also known as reconciliation, it's all right here on the Relevant Radio app, which is yet another reason why you should put it on your phone, because it's great. So let's tap on examination of conscience. So we're going to take up the question, how do I know if something is a mortal sin or not? Now, biblically speaking, in 1 John chapter 5, is where we get the, the phrase mortal sin. St. John says, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is some sin which is not mortal, meaning, as Elizabeth pointed out, it extinguishes the life of grace. It destroys the ability for God to be present in your soul because you can't have light and dark coexisting together, and Almighty God, when he is present in your soul, it's because you're in the state of grace, and, and that's why you're in the state of grace because the Blessed Trinity itself is present in a unique way in your soul, animating your soul with sanctifying grace. So when one chooses to do something that you know is seriously contrary to God's law, and you freely choose to do that anyway, even though you know, this is serious, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, but you do it anyway, that's the essence of when you stray into the territory of mortal sin. So looking at the confession helper, let's take some examples. So we're looking at this examination of conscience. First commandment, have I performed my duties toward God reluctantly or grudgingly? Well, let's say that you are going through a time of spiritual dryness. Some of the great saints have gone through that in some cases for decades on end. St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, for example. It was revealed that she had uh, 40 plus 50 years maybe of just aridity or dryness in her spiritual life by her own admission. And she would make her at least one hour daily adoration time in the chapel with Jesus and the Blessed Sacrament. She prayed constantly. She was a woman of, of prayer, no doubt. 
And she herself said that she didn't feel any spiritual consolations whatsoever. She didn't feel any, any what you might think of as uh, spiritual lollipops, where you have a nice feeling, or you feel refreshed, or you feel that God is present, or any of those things. She didn't feel those things, but she persisted in prayer. And yet, she persisted in prayer. So let's say you're going through a phase like that in your life, where you just, you just don't feel excited about getting up and going to Mass in the morning, or reading the Holy Bible, or what have you. Well, that could be something that is just one of your emotions, and you can't control your emotions generally. You can control how you react to your emotions, but you can't control your emotions. They're like the weather. They tend to come and go, often with you know suddenness, and you don't know where they came from, and you don't know why they left you. So if it's something like that, no. If you're if you're performing your duties reluctantly or grudgingly, and it could be something like you just are in that state of dryness or the dark night of the soul that St. John of the Cross described it, that would not be a mortal sin. It may not even be a sin at all if you're struggling against it and you're persisting in prayer, you're trying to do what God wants of you, prayer foremost among them. But let's say that this is something that's born not of emotion but of laziness. I just don't feel like going to Mass. I'd rather sleep in. I'd rather go to brunch. I'd rather watch the game. I'd rather you fill in the blank. Well, sure, that could be sinful. Now, to the extent that it would become mortally sinful would depend upon what duties are you grudgingly performing. Maybe it's Mass on Sunday and you don't really want to be there. And you go, but you don't pray and you don't pay attention and you don't really say any act of thanksgiving or adore and worship God when you receive Holy Communion. I mean, I could see where for some people that might get into mortally sinful territory. Did I neglect my prayer life? Did I recite my usual prayers? Well, there too. Chances are, for most people, I would guess this would be more negligence or laziness. Um, did, Did you just stop praying altogether? Could that be mortal sin? I mean, if you knew in your heart, let's say, let, let me change the situation around a little bit. Let's say that you're a Catholic priest and you have, among your other obligations, the obligation to what's called pray the office or the breviary. And as I understand it, it takes about an hour, maybe a little bit more, to pray these different parts of the, the daily office. And you can pray them if you're a priest. You can pray them all at once. You could pray them part in the morning, part in the afternoon, part in the evening, the people do it different ways. But that's an obligation that religious have, so a religious man or woman. And by that, for those who are listening, this doesn't mean that you are a religious person. What it means is it's a state of life. So a religious sister would be a nun or a religious sister, so-called. They live in a convent, typically. They take evangelical vows the evangelical councils, poverty, chastity, and obedience. So that's what I'm talking about in a technical sense when we talk about religious. I mean, I like to think I'm a religious person, but I'm not a religious in the ecclesiastical sense. But let's say that you are, and or you're a priest, and you just stop praying. You stop celebrating Mass. You stop praying your office. Well, those definitely would be serious sins because it would be contrary to the rule. Uh, Did I violate the one-hour Eucharistic fast? Well, what does that mean? That means that you make an honest effort to avoid any food or liquid, including coffee, by the way, other than water. You can have water and medicine if necessary. 
But you don't eat any food. You don't uh, drink any beverages within an hour before receiving Holy Communion. It's not an hour before Mass. That would be even better, I guess. But it's even just an hour before receiving Holy Communion. So it's a very minimal thing. And let's say that you know that this is the Church's discipline, and it's enjoined upon all of us, and you just don't care, and it just doesn't really matter, and you decide, well, I know the Church has this law, and I don't really care about it, so I'm going to have a cup of coffee just before I walk into the Church, knowing that I'm going to receive communion 45 minutes later. So I'd be breaking the fast. Could that be a mortal sin? Sure. Sure it could. You may say, well, that's just a little thing. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, if you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in big things. If you are unfaithful in little things, you will be unfaithful in big things. So it could be, you know, just I slipped up. I didn't realize. I didn't look at the clock. Could that just be a matter of negligence? Probably. But for some people, that could be a mortal sin. Did I put my faith in danger? And by the way, we're still just in the first commandment. We're going to stay in the first commandment. We won't go through all ten, but <clears throat> did I did I serious um, did I seriously believe in something superstitious or engage in superstitious practices like palm reading or fortune telling? Um, would that be a mortal sin? Sure, sure it would. Dabbling with the occult, ringing the devil's doorbell. And you might say, well, I didn't really know until I started listening to relevant radio. Then I figured out that this is a serious sin, and then I put it away. Okay, well, keep in mind that when you commit a moral act, in, in this case, let's say you commit a sin, the sin itself, objectively speaking, could be gravely sinful. But your culpability or your, you know, to use a more, more pedestrian term, your guilt could be greatly diminished, in part at least, by ignorance. You might say, I just didn't know. Nobody told me that I shouldn't play with a Ouija board or go to tarot cards or nonsense like that. I just didn't know. And so in your genuine ignorance that you were not intentionally causing, the act itself could be seriously sinful, but your culpability could be diminished. Of course, once you know, kind of like, I didn't know that using artificial birth control was a serious sin. Nobody ever told me this. I never heard it. Nobody ever advised us or explained to us that it was seriously sinful. Okay, well, when you go to confession, bring it up and point out to the priest, I didn't know, but now that you do know, if you were, with your now informed conscience, were to stray into that kind of a sin, well, it would certainly be mortal because you now know. So you can, you can apply this question, Elizabeth, to each of these issues. Some of them, I think, on the surface are pretty clearly, pretty obviously venial sins. Venial just simply means not mortal. It's, it's less um, grave. It's still a sin, as the Bible says in 1 John 5, all wrongdoing is sin, but not all sin is mortal sin. Did you tell a lie under oath? Would that be a mortal sin? Sure. Uh, did you take? Did you break a private or public vow? Yeah. Did you miss Mass on Sunday or a holy day of obligation? And if the answer is yes, and it's your own fault because you didn't feel like getting up, sure, that could be a mortal sin. So that would be my advice. As you go through that, think about it in your own life and think, if, you know, if this were something that you did or, or were tempted to do, and then ask yourself, would this be something serious or would this be something light? Is it light matter or grave matter? 
And if it's, you know, if it's light matter, still sinful, still should be avoided. We should all try to avoid venial sin as much as possible. But definitely you want to fight to the death rather than commit a mortal sin. Thank you for that. I'm glad I had the opportunity to expand on it a little bit because I'm pretty sure, Elizabeth, that more than a few people might have a same, the same question. Thank you for that. 888-914-9149. Let's go to Veronica now in Texas. Hi, Veronica. Hi, Patrick. Hi there. I was calling because um, I really have a strong connection to our Blessed Mother, and I've heard about the Marian consecration. Mm-hmm. And um, due to some personal things in my life right now, I was thinking of, of doing this during my Lenten journey and uh, possibly starting it today to lead up to the Annunciation. Okay. But I wanted to see if you could maybe um, just share a little bit more because I've, even though I've heard about it and I and I've looked at you know um, the steps needed to do it, but I wanted mm-hmm. to see if you know you can share your insights on that. Um, yes, I'll do my best. So a Marian consecration, as you know, but some people listening may not know, is a way of formally entrusting yourself to the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Mother of Jesus Christ, asking her to intercede for you in a particular way. That's that's what it is at its essence. And it's a good thing, because it's a way of drawing close to Our Lady, who was the very first Christian. She was the first one to hear the good news. Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel told her the good news about Jesus. She received Jesus into her heart and into her very body, of course, the very first Christian to do that. She got up and told somebody else about Jesus. So she's the first missionary, the first person to get up and evangelize by literally bringing Jesus to her kinswoman, Elizabeth. And we can go on down the list. So she, of all people in human history, knows Jesus the best and has spent the most time with him, and has been greatly honored by him. So she's a powerful intercessor, to put it simply. That's what a Marian consecration is intended to do, is to really emphasize your devotion to Our Lady as a fellow Christian who is going to help you with her powerful prayers. So understanding that, when you make a Marian consecration, it is is your way of reminding yourself that you have this devotion to her. It's similar in a way to wearing a scapular, for example, or praying the rosary, or doing other things that are associated with devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, all of which are promoted and encouraged by the Church. So you don't have to do this. Nobody's required to do it. It's not obligatory, but it's a good thing. And so I don't know what more info you need, but as you're preparing to do this, Uh, Just realize that this is asking a a member of the body of Christ who happens to be at the very pinnacle of the body of Christ. And I'm not talking about above Jesus. Of course, he is the head of the body, but Our Lady is the greatest of all Christians ever. So that's, that's what you're asking her to do, to take you under her wing, so to speak, and to pray for you and to intercede with Almighty God on your behalf. So there are different books you can use. You don't have to use a book. Um, One that's very popular is called 33 Days to Morning Glory, and it has been wildly popular since it came out within the last decade. I don't remember exactly how long ago it came out. And it would be an extension, for example, of St. Louis de Montfort's True Devotion to Mary. He wrote widely on Marian devotion. And he wrote, let's, let's put it pretty 
bluntly, he wrote in a rather florid way about Our Lady. What he was saying is true, but to modern 21st century American ears that have been conditioned to some extent by objections by Protestants and other things, sometimes some of the ways he phrases things could be could seem to be a little over the top and so on. So don't let those ways of expressing things bother you or deter you, but rather take what's good that you find there and know that you're doing something that is, uh, it's certainly biblical to, to ask for intercession. St. Paul did it all the time in the New Testament letters. He constantly requested intercessory prayers on his behalf, and that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then move forward and make Our Lady in that special place in your life, and you'll never regret it. Does that answer your question? Uh, yes, I think so. And I think just to, so at the end of it, that's when, um, you know, we do the uh, confession and everything. You know, well, here's, here's what I'm out. saying. Okay. If you want to follow that formula, you can do that. Mm-hmm. And okay. in that book, and that's just one of a number of books that give you a variety of ways to do it. Mm-hmm. If you did it that way, yeah, you could end with confession and mass. You're not obliged to do that. That's what I was telling you earlier. Oh, you don't okay. have to do it any particular way. You could read the prayer of consecration. As soon as we hang up the phone, after talking right now, you could, you could in a prayerful way, read that prayer of consecration, and you would have consecrated yourself to Our Lady. It's, it's utterly as simply as, as that. You don't even have to read a formula prayer to do that. So many people are benefited by going through something more formal, more structured. That's where books like this can come in handy. It's more formalized in their mind if it concludes with mass and confession. And those are all good things, but they're not required. You can do it any way you wish. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you. You're welcome, Veronica. Thank you. And if you don't mind, next time you're asking Our Lady to pray for you, if you wouldn't mind asking her to pray for me too, I'd sure appreciate that. We'll take a break and we'll come back to more of your phone calls. Uh, Lines are filling up, so don't shilly-shally, lest you be left out with a busy signal. Call now, 888-914-9149. This is the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Join Father Rocky this September for a pilgrimage to Poland and Prague. You'll visit the lands of St. John Paul the Great, St. Faustina, Our Lady of Czestochowa, and the Infant Child of Prague. Seats are limited. Information at RelevantRadio.com slash Poland. That's RelevantRadio.com slash Poland. Compelling insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. I've got some good news for you. Do you like good news? I do. And here's some good news out of Alabama. This is the Associated Press reporting. The Alabama Supreme Court has ruled that frozen embryos can be considered children under state law. And of course they are, but uh, under state law, a ruling critics said could have sweeping implications for fertility treatments. I hope they do. The decision was issued in a pair of wrongful death cases brought by three couples who had frozen embryos destroyed in an accident at a fertility clinic. 
Justices citing anti-abortion language. You notice that way the Associated Press words it, anti-abortion. Hey, I'm proud to be anti-abortion. Don't you know? I'm anti-slavery. I'm anti-stealing. I'm anti-theft. I'm anti-war. And I'm anti-abortion. I have no problem with that term. They think it's a put-down. Um, 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 uh, justices citing anti-abortion language in the Alabama Constitution ruled that an 1872 state law allowing parents to sue over the death of a minor child applies to all unborn children regardless of their location. Um, unborn children are children, the court said, without exception based on developmental stage, physical location, or any other ancillary characteristics. And that was penned by Justice J. Mitchell. He wrote the majority ruling. And there's more, of course, but the point is they're trying to make this look as though it's an attack on human rights and whatnot. Talk about an attack on human rights. If you're put on ice, you're, you're conceived in a Petri dish in a laboratory, and you're stuck on ice indefinitely. You're cryogenically frozen, and you're on ice in some deep freeze for months, years, decades even. Talk about an attack on human dignity. So don't, don't forget, no one has a right to an abortion because no one has a right to take the life of an innocent person. And an unborn child is an innocent person. Life begins at conception. So this is good news. I'm happy to see it. I hope it proliferates. Please, God. 888-914-9149. Let's go to Tulio now in Silvis, Illinois. I've been to Silvis, Illinois. Is there a lady, Our Lady oh. of Guadalupe Parish in that area, Tulio? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been to that parish. That's a great little place. Well, welcome yeah, aboard. Yeah. Um, so my question is, I know the church doesn't have holy water, you know, during Lent season. Uh, is it okay for us to use it at home? <laughs> Not only yes, is it okay for you to, to use it at home, but it should be present in, during Lent. And the church does not say that the holy water font should be emptied. Um, oh. For some reason, yeah, yeah, for some reason, and I began noticing this in the 1970s. I don't think it really existed or it didn't exist widely before that. But there was this trendy trend that in many parishes, you know, they would put, they would either remove the holy water from the holy water fonts in the parish or they would uh, put sand in it, or rocks, or something like that. And the thinking was that this is a way to remind yourself that you're in the desert, and you you don't have recourse to things like holy water um, during Lent, things like that. I would say that's a misguided approach to the issue, of course. But no, holy water should be present all the time, and it's certainly not supposed to be taken out of the churches at Lent. Now, some churches do that, unfortunately, but... To answer your question, you can certainly use holy water at home anytime you wish. Wow, that's that's. Uh, I'm glad I called about that because we 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 automatically thinking that because maybe Jesus didn't have you know what he needed in the forty mm -hmm. days or you know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, but see, that's, that's... well, think about that for a second. And I'm not I'm not directing this toward you, Tulio. But if somebody were to say that, then you'd say, oh, well, then I guess we shouldn't eat any food for 40 days, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus did not eat any food. For the, yep. for, who's yeah. going to sign up for that, right. you know? <laughs> yeah. So it, it can be, 
I would say it's an oddly idiosyncratic thing that is supposed to, I guess, heighten one's Lenten experience. Sometimes in some churches you'll see where they will remove any beautifying flowers or things of that nature, and they'll put cactus, cacti in the sanctuary, or they'll, they'll, they'll put things in there that are supposed to look unpleasant, like burlap or a tumbleweed. I've seen that. I saw a tumbleweed once in the parish sanctuary oh. during wow. Lent. Yeah, huh. things like that. That's it's just idiosyncratic and it's certainly not necessary, certainly not what the church calls for. Okay, I got one more question if I have time. Okay. Yeah. I'll make time okay. for you, Tulio. <laughs> Thank you. Who brought the the rosary to us? Was it now I'm, I'm I'm guessing here, was it Saint Dominic? Well, the story goes that Saint Dominic, who is the founder of the Order of Preachers, also known as the Dominicans, about 800 years ago, that he received from Our Lady in some manner. We don't know exactly what it was, but the story is that he received from her, um, we could say, a private revelation in to pray the rosary in the form that we have it today. So five decades of ten beads for Hail Marys set apart by one bead between each one for the Our Father. And she told him that this would be a great weapon of prayer against a lot of things like heresy, vice, sin, etc. So it was he who began to really popularize it in the form that we know it. Now, the reason I say in the form that we know it is because the Psalter of Mary, P-S-A-L-T-E-R, the Psalter refers to the Psalms in the Old Testament, and so the Psalter of Mary was a way of describing when people would pray Marian prayers, such as the Hail Mary, which comes to us from Luke chapter 1, so it did exist in a different form. It was it was uh, rather ad hoc. But when St. Dominic began to promote the rosary, it was in the form that we know it today. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I did hear that they used to use rocks and, and pray the rosary and put it yeah, in a tray. Yeah, you can do that. Mm-hmm. I read a story once when I was a kid about a priest who was in, I think it was like a Japanese concentration camp during World War II. And I was really struck by the fact that of course, they they removed any personal items that they had. They weren't allowed to have anything, certainly not a rosary. And so he found a piece of barbed wire laying around, and he fashioned that piece of barbed wire into a rosary. And, and it was probably wow. just 10 pieces of barbs, but he would pray his rosary on a piece of barbed wire. Wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah, that, that does it. You know. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm hooked on this radio station. I'm, I think I'm driving my family crazy, but... <laughs> In a good way, hopefully. Uh, Let's the, get them all hooked on this radio station, shall we? I, I, I'm trying. I'm trying. So I'm, I'm putting you. it on, whether they like it or not. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and, 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 and I'm passing the info on about the app, too. So everybody, oh, great. everyone I know everyone I know is getting the app. Thank you. Yep. So Hey, if you want to become a parish ambassador, we could make it formal if you want. It takes about, I think they estimate it's maximum maybe 15 hours per year. Not per week, not per month, but per year. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, we supply all the materials so that you can be a parish ambassador and help people in your area know about Relevant Radio. Uh, we supply the bumper stickers, the posters, the printed materials. There's no oh, cost wow. to you at all. So if you're oh, interested, good. we can make this more formal, Tulio. Um, no obligation. It's not like you're signed up for life or anything. But just go to relevantradio.com, and you'll see uh, in the the navigation bar, where it says support. So if you mouse over that, 
at the bottom, or at the bottom is where you can get a bumper sticker, but three doors down is where it says Ambassador Program. So you can click on that and see if it's something that would appeal to you. I have a feeling it might. And it, it gives all kinds of specific things. Uh, you'll find it's a lot of fun. We have a lot of parish ambassadors around the country. I'm a parish ambassador at my parish. So it's a neat thing to do. And if you love Relevant Radio this much, and I'm glad to hear that, this would be a great way to take it to the next level. Okay. I'm on there right now, mm-hmm. relevantradio.com, and yep. then I scroll all the way down. Well, you see where it says listen, support, faith, contact at the top? Uh, see here. At the top. Uh, it's right yeah. below the Relevant Radio logo in the top center. Yep, I see it. Okay, so just put the mouse over support, and I'll have a drop-down menu appear. Yep. And then click on Ambassador Program. Oh, that's easy. Yeah. So all the info is there. It lays it all out. And um, as I yeah. say, we handle all of the, I mean, you you wouldn't pay a penny for anything. We handle all the materials. We send them to you. All we ask is that you do your best with your pastor's permission to just raise awareness and let people in the parish know about Relevant Radio. That's it. That's what I'll yeah. do. Okay. Awesome, like Tulio. Thank you. Yeah, this this has been bringing me a lot closer to to my faith. I, I really never have been this close to my faith. And, uh, yeah, this radio stations, it's, it's pulling me in to learn more and to know more and to, I even go to church more than once, a, once a week, you know? So that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That is been, awesome. It's been really, been really pulling me. Uh, uh, See how God works. Um, now I'm curious, how did you find out about relevant radio? At, uh, Guadalupe, our priest, mm-hmm. Father Peter. Yep. He, is he, his last name Zerjon or something like that? Yeah, yeah. That's I him. know him. What a fine man he is. What a good priest he is. Yeah, yeah, he really yeah. is. Yeah. Please tell him I said hello. Yeah. yeah, I will. I will let him know. And uh, yeah, that's how I got started. So we, I've been doing that. And yeah, for, I just, I don't know if it's, uh, I, I, I just feel like a pull. Something's pulling me more and more and more and more. So if anybody out there is listening and they want to feel, you know, a lot closer to God, just start listening to Relevant Radio, and you'll, you'll get pulled in, just like me. <laughs> yes, indeed. If we do our job well, you will. And that's what Jesus meant by being drawn by the Father. You're being drawn closer and deeper. So, well, it's yeah. nice to make your acquaintance, Tulio. I really appreciate your phone call. Thank you. Have a good day. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Hey, real quick, for what it's worth for people who are interested— uh, Father John Zulsdorf, good man. He's uh, an American priest. He has a weblog, uh, also known as a blog, called What Does the Prayer Really Say? And if you just put in the first letter of each word of that phrase, you'll get to his blog. So W-D-T-P-R-S, W-D-T-P-R-S. That means what does the prayer really say? And he has a number of... Um, um, entries, let's say, about putting sand in the holy water fonts. And he's even, in a couple of these, he's got some pictures, like, you know, it's your parish, and there's a pile of sand in the in the holy water font. And there's even a sign in one of them that shows some sand, and then there's like a little purple placard that says, um, as we await the blessing of water at the Easter Vigil, may we prepare to renew our baptismal promises from our hearts and that's sitting on top of a, a pile of sand. 
So if you're interested in what Father Z has to say about this, uh, I would check it out. Maybe we can get a link to this. But one of the things he points out is that this question was raised at the Vatican. It was a, a dubium. And a dubium, not to be confused with the Doobie brothers, totally different. A dubium is a, it's a Latin word, which means you're asking a question. You're seeking clarification. You have a doubt or a question about what is the right answer to this. So on at least one occasion, this question was raised with the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments. And so here is the response, dated March 14th, year 2000. Dear Father, the Congregation for Divine Worship has received your letter sent by fax in which you ask whether it is in accord with liturgical law to remove the holy water from the fonts for the duration of the season of Lent. This dicastery is able to respond that the removing of holy water from the fonts during the season of Lent is not permitted, and for two particular reasons. And here's what the the Vatican congregation says. Number one, the liturgical legislation in force does not foresee this innovation, which in addition to being praetor legem, is contrary to a balanced understanding of the season of Lent, which, though truly being a season of penance, is also a season rich in the symbolism of water, and baptism constantly evoked in the liturgical texts. That's referring to the readings at Mass during Lent. The second reason that this Vatican congregation says that this is not permitted is the encouragement of the Church that the faithful avail themselves frequently of her sacraments and sacramentals, and holy water is a sacramental, is to be understood to apply also to the season of Lent. The fast and abstinence which the faithful embrace in the season does not extend to abstaining from the sacraments or from sacramentals. The practice of the Church has been to empty the holy water fonts on the days of the sacred triduum in preparation for the blessing of the water at the Easter Vigil, and it corresponds to those days on which the Eucharist is not celebrated. In other words, Good Friday and Holy Saturday. So there it is. Uh, holy water is a sacramental. You have a right to the sacramentals of the church. You don't even have to be Catholic, by the way, to avail yourself of the sacramentals. Now, that's different from the sacraments. That's a separate issue. Sacramental could be anything like uh, the blessing of a priest, genuflecting before you enter your pew at Mass, uh, bowing before the altar or genuflecting before the tabernacle, reading the Holy Bible, lighting a blessed candle, Uh, praying with rosary beads, uh, dipping your fingers in a holy water font and making the sign of the cross with the holy water, uh, having a a statue of Our Lady or one of the saints or a crucifix. These are all sacramentals. They're not sacraments. They don't confer sanctifying grace the way the sacraments do, but they are ordered toward moving you in the direction of God and the things of God. And so they have a holy purpose. They have a holy purpose goal in mind, which is to nudge us in the right direction. So everybody has a right to that. Even though non-Catholics are not able to receive most of the sacraments until they become Catholic. And by the way, the only sacrament that Catholics cannot receive, did you know that one of the seven sacraments cannot be received by a Catholic? You're saying, what? Think about it. The sacrament of baptism. It's the only sacrament that Catholics are barred from receiving. Because if you're already Catholic, that means you were already baptized. Ha ha, I tricked you. Uh, so the only people who can receive that sacrament are people who are unbaptized. 
So sacramentals, crucifixes, Bibles, rosary beads, holy water, blessings, all of these things, anybody can receive them. You don't have to be Catholic. All right, we'll take a quick time out and come right back to more phone calls. That number again, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. I'll be right back. This hour is supported by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Join the nation's largest Catholic-oriented credit union and receive $200 when you add a direct deposit. Learn more at NotreDameFCU.com slash join. That's NotreDameFCU.com slash join. Welcome back to the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Have a question? Give Patrick a call. 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Patrick Madrid on Relevant Radio. In a little bit, I'm going to share with you um, a letter, a pastoral letter that went out from the Bishop of Baker, Oregon, uh, talking about the controversial fiducia supplicans, this document from the Vatican on blessing irregular couples and uh, couples in irregular situations, and specifically mentioning blessing same-sex couples. That's caused no end of controversy and difficulties. So um, I'd like to read to you, and I will do so in a few minutes, the statement recently issued by the Bishop of Baker, Oregon. I think he gets right to the heart of things, and I think you'll find that uh, helpful as well. 888-914-9149. Let's go to Kelly now in Williamston, Michigan. Good morning, Kelly. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So um, I have a little bit of a like a difficult situation. I wasn't sure what to do. Um, okay. I have a four-year-old daughter who I've been praying about a lot lately because I have five children, but for some reason she has been have has had the most trouble, um, you know, just fits of rage and like waking up with night terrors. And I just have prayed for her and I've tried so many things. And I finally was said a prayer um, to mother Mary to help please reveal if something happened like trauma or something that happened to her. Like why mm -hmm. is she having so much more trouble than the other kids? Okay. <clears throat> well, then I was watching a priest interview last night, and he was talking about how in Mexican cultures, I'm Mexican, my family's Mexican, mm -hmm. you can have very devout Catholics, but they still use these little charms and bracelets and things that are from like old rituals that are not Christian. Mm -hmm. Superstitious. And, yeah. Yes. And then I had this aha moment. And when she was a baby, I bought. I mean, I was gifted a little bracelet and it was for her protection. It had a little Mother Mary bead, so I didn't think anything of it. And she wore it all the time as a baby. And I said, oh, no, it had a Mother Mary bead. It wasn't, you know, one of those evil eye things. Well, mm -hmm. I had it in my jewelry box. I pulled it out and sure enough, it was one large Mother Mary bead. But then all the little beads around it, and it's this little red bracelet, has these little evil eyes. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh, my goodness, what? Like I, she wore that all the time when she was a baby and my family would say, oh yeah, you know, that's very old traditional. It protects the baby from getting sick. And so I didn't think anything of it, but now I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe I let something in or something that's affecting her. So now my question is, what do I do? I still have yeah. this bracelet. Do I put it in the trash? Do I say a prayer? If it is something bad that I let in, like, where do I go now? Okay. 
Um, first of all, I think it's great that you're vigilant and you're you're trying to do the right thing. So good for you. I don't think that's probably the cause of this, if I had to guess. And I have a few thoughts about what what other avenues you might pursue. But in the meantime, though, yeah, I would get rid of that. The evil eye is, I understand, in Sicily, Italy, um, Mexico, and other countries, it is a cultural thing that's very popular and goes back a long time. But it is, let's face it, it is a form of superstition. So my thought would be, A, get rid of it. And um, if you feel that this may have had some connection to your daughter's, your daughter being um, unhappy, cranky, difficult, whatever the proper terms are, uh, you could ask a parish priest to give her a special blessing and to ask her, ask him rather, to pray a prayer of deliverance over her. And he'll be happy to do that. And that, if there's any kind of connection there, I think that would be sufficient. If I had to guess, I'd say that would be sufficient to move forward. Now, what are some of the other possibilities? Well, one that comes to my mind immediately is some people are just naturally cranky and they just, that's just how they are. And, you know, who knows what causes that, especially in a a child, a, a toddler, you know, she, I guess she's not technically a toddler, but some people's personalities are just that way. And you probably have known some people who are just, they're just sort of always cranky. They're always fussing about things and, mm. and they can just be difficult. And maybe it's not their own fault, but it could just be that. And I'm not trying to say your daughter is a difficult person or anything, but maybe it's just her personality type to be a little bit that way. Um, it also could be something that she, it could be some experience that's bothering her. God forbid it was anything terrible like sexual abuse, but I mean, there, there's always that possibility as well. But if it's if that's not likely, it could also be maybe she has some kind of physical discomfort and she doesn't mm-hmm. know how to explain it. Maybe she, her stomach always hurts her and she doesn't know how to explain it. I mean, that could happen too. So maybe if you, next time you take her to the pediatrician, you can ask the pediatrician about this and see if there are any like tests that could be done or something just to see. And if you've ruled those things out and it doesn't seem to be anything like that, then, uh, yeah, I would definitely pursue having prayers of deliverance prayed for her and hopefully that will clear it up. That'd be my, that that's what I would do if I were in your situation, Kelly. Great. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I will pursue all of those things. Okay, great. Well, you're a great mom, Kelly, and your daughter and your other children are happy to have you as their mom. Lucky to have you. you. Blessed to have you. You're welcome. Well, thank you, Kelly. 888-914-9149. Yeah, by the way, if you have, uh, you know, artifacts from the occult in your home, get them out, get rid of them. If you have a Ouija board or tarot cards or talismans or things like that, they're not harmless. I call them the devil's doorbells. Because if you ring them, he will answer. He may not appear to you. You may not realize that his influence is growing in your home, but it is. Same thing is true for pornography, by the way. If you have uh, on the computer or the phone or whatever, and there's one or more members of the family dabbling in pornography, that's like setting up a shrine to the devil in your home. Because he's going to come right through that, right into the home. So cleanse your homes from things like that if you're aware that anything like that is in your home. 
Let's go to Melva now in Washington. Good morning, Melva. Washington State or Washington, D.C.? Uh, state. Got it. Well, welcome. Okay. Thank you. Um, I, as many people, I am very concerned right now about how I should vote in the coming election for the presidential. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel I vote for Trump if he candidate. Unfortunately, Melvin, I don't know what's going on, but your phone is cutting in and out. Let me see if I can glean your question. Did you say you're wondering about how to vote in the upcoming presidential election? Yeah. Okay. Well, one thing I, I mean, I can't tell you who to vote for, but I would say I approach the ballot box. I approach the voting booth with my Catholic biblical principles foremost in mind. And obviously, if you're voting for the, you know, let's just say, let's say the state tax commissioner who has nothing whatsoever to do with policy regarding life issues, as an example. Well, if I'm aware that the candidate for tax commissioner is um, a raging pro-abortion person, I I wouldn't vote for her or for him, even just for that reason alone. But um, some offices don't require that kind of commitment one way or the other because the office doesn't touch upon those matters. But something like the presidency certainly does. And so I would approach, and I do approach, the voting booth with my Catholic biblical principles in mind. And if it means to vote for a candidate who may not be to my liking on some issues, but he or she is strongly pro-life, strongly pro-traditional marriage, uh, whether or not that person is Catholic— to me, that wouldn't matter, but rather what kind of principles, what kind of moral convictions would that person bring to the office? Now, part of that, of course, is to say, well, look at the person's life. Does that person live according to good moral principles? And I can't imagine that any given candidate could pass that test with 100%. Maybe some can, but maybe Jimmy Stewart could have and Mr. Smith goes to Washington. But aside from that, you're going to find that people in general will fall short of that. So one question I would ask myself is, how far short of that mark does this person fall? So I would make my decisions on that basis. Um, For me, if somebody is willing to make the wrong decision on something that's so blatantly obvious, and that's, I'm talking about abortion, it's so blatantly obvious that you don't take the life of an innocent person. And if the person can't be trusted to at least make that no-brainer decision, I seriously question whether I can trust him or her with nuclear launch codes or the keys to the economy or the border problem. I mean, there are a lot of things that I wonder about. If you can't make that right decision, I don't think I can trust you on just about anything else. So that's part of my evaluation of candidates. And... um, I guess I would just put it that way. Take those deliberations with you. Think about them. Get to know the candidates as best you can. Good luck trying to find a perfect candidate. I've never found one. So there are flaws in different directions. Um, But I personally would never, ever, ever vote for a candidate who espouses abortion. 
To me, that's a, a, a no-go, just a non-starter. There are other important issues, that's for sure. That's not the only issue. But if I can't trust the person on that issue, I don't really think I can trust him or her on other issues as well. I hope that helps, Melva. Any follow-up thought on that from you? Well, I guess my my concerns right now are more with what is going on with just what you said. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess I feel that he didn't prove that he really is against it when he... Who are we talking about? We're talking about Trump. Okay. And I mean, I guess I'm looking at the nucleal... It's just so scary up here right now. Yeah, I know. It is uncertain. I wish we had more time, Elva, but unfortunately, we've reached the top of the hour. So how about this? Ask Jesus to guide you, to illuminate your mind, to give you wisdom, to do the right thing when it comes to voting for a candidate, especially in this next election. And he'll help you, that's for sure. And I'll be right back. 